I realize that's not the easiest hymn to sing, but it is beautiful, and I think with practice it'll become uh, one of our favorites here, and it will become easy. But uh, even I missed a few of the notes. Uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 20. That's, uh, that's the sermon text this morning. Romans chapter 6, verse 20 through 22. Very, very nearly near the end of Romans chapter 6. Hear God's word. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness in the end, everlasting life. Let us pray to God. Our Father in heaven, we we are grateful for your word once more. And as, as always... We acknowledge to you that you are the author of the words of life and that we can't find them anywhere else. Where else would we go to to be instructed in the ways that lead to life? We ask you, O God, that through the preaching you might greatly illumine this, that we might take these things to heart as a matter of faith and that you might strengthen us in our endeavor to get there where we are going. We ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, once more, we are considering, uh, as chapter 6 is broken into two main questions, both dealing with uh, the antinomian problem or the accusation of the legalist, namely, if, if you teach this dangerous doctrine of grace, then people will simply live however they want. And so he asked the question in verse 1, shall we sin that grace may abound? Certainly not, he says. How can we who died to sin still live in it? That's the answer. But then he asked the question in verse 15, Because we're not under law, but under grace, shall we sin? Just as simply as that, which is the inference that many make, uh, if only by uh, their their carelessness or their desire to sin. Uh, What we all, in essence, say in our weaker moments, because I'm under grace, uh, then I'm not under the constraints of the law, and it really is all right to sin. And, uh, or it really doesn't matter all that much. And the answer to the question, which he gives in verse 16, and this becomes the master thought of the second part of chapter 6, is you're you're the slave of the one you obey. He says in verse 16, "Uh, don't you know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. And so at that point, he confronts us with this truth that there are two forms of slavery. And while it was implied in chapter uh, 6, verses 1 through 14, that we're no longer slaves to sin. Uh, here he makes it explicit. You've been freed from slavery to sin. But don't, don't infer from that falsely that you are therefore free with respect to God. No, he says, you've become slaves now to God. That's the argument that uh, he has been making, making. And if having been freed from sin, verse 18, and thus becoming slaves of God, why not use your bodies in the service of God in just the same way in your former life you used your body in the service of sin. Verse 19. I would notice well that in chapter 6 verses 15 through 23. That's the only admonition. Everything else is a description either of the old life or the new. But verse 19 he says I, I'll read it. I, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness. 
leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. That's what we saw last time. But in light of that exhortation, he goes on to say, as though to support it and to supply reasons to, uh, to live a life of slavery to God, he says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free uh, with regard to righteousness and so on, verses 20 through 22. What Paul does there is what he's been doing. He did it in verse uh, 16, verse 17. He did it again in verse 19. Now he does it in verses 20 through 22. Uh, and it becomes the natural division of the text. He contrasts the old and the new. Uh, the, the old slavery to sin and the new slavery to God. We could say the new freedom from sin, and that's true. But we need to go all the way and say, being freed from sin, we're now slaves to God. And you notice he says it again in these verses as well. And so we look at it in terms of this contrast. And we need to appreciate the value of the contrast. And, and, and this, this uh, will, will naturally present uh, a neat division of the sermon. Simply looking at both sides of the contrast. On the one side, Paul says, there's what you were. Verses 20 and 21. For when you were. Do you ever notice how often Paul does this? He, he often uh, speaks to the Christian not only in terms of what he is, that is his predominant disposition in his preaching. But very often, as a supplement to that, he speaks to the Christian in terms of what he was. Not only what we are, but what we were. And why does he do that? Well, uh, in, on the one hand, it is simply to magnify the grace of God. The grace of God is not only seen in what you are now. Surely you can say, I am what I am by the grace of God. It is seen in what you are now, but, but all the more is it magnified when it is seen compared to what you were. That's how Paul ends chapter 5. He says, where, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. We see grace abounding in contrast to sin. That's one reason. But another reason, and this is really the thrust of the passage, when Paul has just said, stop, stop. Going back to the ways of sin, why don't you begin to be as eager to serve God as you once were so eager to sin? Now, that's verse 19. That's the admonition. And he's supporting that admonition. He's saying, in essence, having described the old life, do you see now that God has saved you? How unthinkable it is that you should ever go back to the old ways of the old man. This is, as I say, a common argument in Paul. You'll find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. He not only tells us what we are, but what we were. Ephesians chapter 4, Colossians chapter 3, Titus chapters 2 and 3. That is always the argument. And so what he does on the one side, uh, and perhaps this is unpopular and you might even claim unedifying, though I would challenge that, he provides a portrait of the, of the old life. When you were slaves of sin, as though uh, to say, don't lose sight of this. Have you forgotten already what it was like to be a slave of sin? Have you forgotten the old ways of the old man? There's two errors Paul seems to be saying we must avoid. On the one hand, and this brings us back into part one of chapter six, the one error which was so common in the older, the, uh, the fathers, I would call them, and I'm very hesitant to ever argue with uh, or to take an issue with the teaching of the Puritan fathers. But on this point, I do. And, and most modern uh, reformed 
uh, teachers do as well. It's, it's the old fallacy of the old man is still alive, that he needs to be crucified. Paul is saying in chapters one through, or verses 1 through 14, you need to have it clear that the old man is dead so that the old ways are gone. And if you ever go back to the old ways, it's as a new man, not as the old man. You're not still contending with him. He's been crucified. He's gone. You're now a new creation in Christ. Again, if you sin now, you do so as a new creation, not as the old man, but the new. But it's equally wrong, Paul seems to be saying now in the second portion, uh, it is equally wrong to forget him altogether. You see, you don't want to imagine that he's always there troubling you. He isn't. But it's equally wrong to imagine uh, that he has no place in our thoughts. In fact, Paul seems to be suggesting that we get in trouble because we do so. We need to remember and we need to be reminded through the reading of the word and, and through the preaching. Not only what we are, but what we were. And the reason that is valuable, I'll say again is because in remembering the former life, we'll be less likely to go back. I I suppose in that sense, I could add a third error that we need to be warned off against, and that's our tendency to romanticize the past. (laughs) Sometimes we as Christians think, uh, you know, uh, life was easier before I was a Christian. I remember how much fun I had. I remember enjoying sin a great deal. Now, in just that moment, Satan is tempting you. It isn't the old man because he's gone. Let me be clear about that. It isn't the old man speaking to you. It's Satan. And it's our own, our own error and our own folly. It's at just that moment that Paul is saying you need to remember. And you need to have it perfectly clear in your mind what that life really consisted of. It was not a life of, of fun and joy and pleasure. It was the most miserable. It was the most sinful. It was the most dark existence There ever was. And all glory and praise to God that he delivered you out of it. You were a slave to sin, Paul says. That is something we ought always to remember. You you see, I've been at pains to tell you as Christian people that you are not a slave to sin. And you've got to get a hold of that teaching for yourself. In the very hour of temptation, I'm not a slave to sin. It commands, but I need not obey. But at the same time, You ought to remember what that slavery was like in that moment as well. Just when you're tempted to act as though you're a slave to sin. Do you remember what a terrible tyrant of a master sin was? Do you remember how all of its commands were calculated to bring about misery and despair in your life? Not happiness. Do you remember uh, in that old life, Paul said in verse 19, how eager you were to sin? How free you thought you were. I can do whatever I want. Uh, So he goes on to say free from righteousness. That is, uh, by the way, there's five characteristics of the old man, uh, the old life in this negative portrait. The first is you were a slave to sin. The second is you were free from righteousness, or at least so you thought you were. Isn't it wonderful? I don't have to obey God. So the old man reasons the, the slave of sin, except what he misses is all of the blessings that righteousness entails. Righteousness is, uh, is, is the farthest thing from his mind, which is as though to say he's without God in this world. You see, righteousness is not, it's not a curse. It's not a restraint in the negative sense. But it is to the sinner. You are free with regard to righteousness. The next thing he says is that you lived a fruitless Life. He does so by asking the question, what fruit do you, did you have? 
It's, it's a rhetorical question. We know the answer. At least if we are able to look honestly at the old man, that is our old selves before we were saved, we can say, that was a life without fruit. I wasn't bearing any fruit to God. Even those things which I thought were good works were worthless. They were, they were motivated by a sinful desire. The unbeliever never bears fruit to God because he's always sinning. And sin is not fruit bearing. Sin is negation. Sin is death, Paul says. The next thing he says about in this portrait of the old man is that it's a shameful life. The things for which you are now ashamed. As though to remind us, not only is sin fruitless, but sin is shameful. The life of sin is a life of shame. And if you think about the modern uh, world, that will go a long ways to explaining how we got where we are. Uh, Men no longer blush at sin. In fact, they smile at it. They celebrate it. They've lost the capacity ever to feel shame. In fact, if you ever do, they say uh, you, you ought not to feel ashamed. Well, Paul is saying... In one sense, it made you ashamed then. It made you ashamed uh, when you were living that life. But especially now, when you look back at the old life and you think about the person that you were and the things that you did, you're ashamed to think of it. You're not happy. You're not romanticizing the past. The unbeliever feels perhaps a little bit But that doesn't stop him from sinning. And what ultimately happens to him is he gets to the point where he feels no shame at all. But the wonder of conversion, Paul is saying, is how it puts a stop to sin in our lives. It makes us look at ourselves honestly and say, what a sinner I am. How ashamed I am that I should ever have lived like this. That's the argument. And so we realize, by God's grace, we can't go on living as we once did. And if perhaps... We do go back to the old ways for a time. It is the shame itself that we feel that puts a stop to sin. But the last thing he says is the end of the of those things is death. What things? Well, those things which now make you ashamed as you think of your old self. Sin in in all of its forms leading to death by an invincible power of necessity. And will you not dread that which is apt to kill you? Paul is saying. Are you really prepared to romanticize the old life and the old man when you realize that was the path that led to hell? The end of those things is death. It's helpful here to remember exactly what is meant by death. And death has been something of uh, a key thought in the comparison that Paul has been drawing, whether between Adam and Christ or those who are in Adam or Christ, beginning in chapter 5, verse 12. And the leading thought of chapter 5, verse 12 is death. He says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all sinned. What uh, what Paul is speaking of there is the fact of physical, literal death, the dissolution of the body. But the death in view for Adam and for uh, everyone who is in him is even greater than that. It is the exact counterpart to the everlasting life spoken of. Uh, On the side of the new man. Not only the dissolution of the body. But the life without God. Both in this world and the next. And rather than drawing nearer and nearer to him. In a blessed communion. It is a, a departing from him. And separating from him further and further and further. Throughout all eternity. 
Death is separation from God. The man who is living a life of sin is the man who's turned his back on God. The man who's walking away. And so the argument becomes, seeing all this, the kind of man I was, the kind of life I lived, I cannot possibly go back. It's all so clear to me now. Uh, That's the value of considering what we once were. It becomes a motive and an incentive to living the Christian life. Uh, You could think of it like this, asking the question, is it possible for me as a new man to go back and live as I once did? And the answer is, it's not possible for the man who knows what he was. He could never go back. It's only possible for the man who has forgotten. If you think of a book like Augustine's Confessions, its value is seen in this. I wonder how many of you have read it. What, what he's confessing. And the portrait that he's painting is both what he became, but also what he was. He's engaging exactly uh, in what Paul is doing here. He is describing, he is confessing the man that he was before God's grace got a hold of him. And on the other side, what he became uh, as a result of God's grace. The question which confronts us naturally is whether we are able to do that. Can we give an account of this ourselves? Not only uh, the ability to say, I know what I am now by the grace of God, but also I know what I was. I'm able to look back on that old life and to honestly claim I was a sinner on the path to hell and that I deserve to go to hell. And that as I consider the life that I live, I don't romanticize it. I don't glorify it. I don't joke about the sins that I used to commit. But I look back with another horror at the kind of life that I lived. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones calls this an analysis of sin. Do you ever engage in that kind of thing? Sin not in the abstract, but real sins committed by real sinners. The life of sin. I remind you again that the New Testament is full of this sort of thing. So too are the Puritan fathers. I was reminded this week uh, in, in the preparation of the sermon, one of the most useful books I read early on in the ministry was Ralph Fenning's The Sinfulness of Sin. Now, one of the things that John Owen says, and I agree with John Owen on this point, is that sin is not a proper object of meditation. You aren't looking back on sin. You aren't analyzing it in such a way that it might tempt you again. You are analyzing it in order to see its vile sinfulness. The thing that occurs to you and strikes you most as you look upon sin, and especially the sins you once committed, and the kind of person you were, is in order that you might be struck with the sinfulness of sin, as Paul says in Romans chapter 7. And so I'm not arguing here. Uh, for a kind of introspection or a kind of preoccupation with sin. I agree with Owen. It's dangerous uh, to meditate on sin too much, lest we be tempted. I don't think that sort of thing is healthy for the Christian. But uh, there is a place for the passing glance or the occasional reminder, uh, the look back, if only that we might be deterred from the ways of sin. The way to avoid going back is to remember how bad it was. It is to paint sin in its true colors. 
That brings us to the other side, and that is the positive portrait. He says, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then? And the things of which you are now ashamed for the end of those things is death. There's the negative portrait, but on the other side, he says, but now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. It is, again, the old comparison, the difference between the then and the now. And again, I would say, if you do not understand this difference, the, the, the difference of this simple comparison, uh, indeed, I'll quote Lloyd-Jones again when he says, this is essential Christianity. If you don't know that difference, then you don't know what it means to be a Christian. The Christian is someone who knows what Paul is talking about here. He's a man who has a then and a now, a man who has two stories. That's not at all to suggest, and this is, uh, again, along the wrong lines of a morbid uh, introspection, I'm not at all suggesting that we try to play up our former sinfulness in order that we could give a better testimony. I think we've all been in situations where that was done. But an honest appraisal, an honest assessment of what we were, And where we were going. A sinner who was under the condemnation of God. I as a person deserve to go to hell. Has that thought ever occurred to you? Do you understand what an affront your sin was to God? And how wonderful and how magnificent and how almighty the grace was that saved you from where you were going. You see it wasn't just that you were sinning. It's that you were going to hell. The end of these things is death. How much has that thought really struck you? And do you ever look at wonder that God should have saved you from what you were? I would even say that the child whom God has saved at an early age can do this. He can't necessarily point back to a life of sin, but he can at least say with David, I was born in iniquity, I was conceived in sin. That's what I was, but now. But now I'm something altogether new. Verses 20 and 21, the argument is what you were. And when you were these things, what did you have? Well, we saw what the answer was. You didn't have anything. But here the question becomes, what do you have now? And he doesn't ask it, actually. He asserts it. But now you have your fruit to holiness in the end, everlasting life. Before, what did you have? You didn't have anything. But now, now look what you have. And he begins before he stresses what you have. Again, the fruit of holiness and your, and your end, eternal life. But, 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 but before he says that, he, he reminds us, as he did in verse 18, that you have been freed from sin if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And now you are a slave to God. And if those two things are true of you, if God by his grace has set you free and enlisted you in his service, you need to know what you have. And what you have stands in a striking contrast to what you didn't have before. The first thing he says is you have fruit to holiness. You see, before you didn't have any fruit. But now he says before it was what fruit did you have? The the answer was none. But now he says you have fruit to holiness, the fruitful life. The Christian is someone who bears fruit to God. That's the argument. The argument is not some Christians bear fruit to God. The argument is every Christian 
bears fruit to God. And if he doesn't, then he isn't a Christian. If he's still living the life of sin, then he isn't a Christian. But the Christian is someone who bears fruit to God. What a difference, in other words, Paul is saying conversion makes. This is what distinguishes the Christian from everyone else. It's the presence of fruit. You ask the question, how did it get there? Well, uh, this is where the analogy of fruit is a very helpful one. Because Paul isn't saying that you become fruitful through your own efforts. That's to destroy the argument of grace. That's to put the, the believer under law again. He's saying it's something that God does. The way fruit gets there is God puts it there. He engrafts you into Jesus Christ and so you are fruitful. All who abide in the vine will bear fruit. And in this, his father is glorified. John chapter 15. Or you think of the parable of the sower. What is the point of that parable? It's that those who are truly saved by the word are those who bear fruit. There's three kinds of soil uh, where the seed is scattered and what ultimately reveals them to be unbelieving is that none of them bear fruit for God. But the fourth kind of soil is the kind in which the seed takes root and it bears fruit. Not all the same, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. There's a great variety of fruit bearing in the Christian church. But everyone in whom the word of God takes root will bear fruit for God. What kind of fruit? Paul says the fruit of holiness. Fruit which consists in holiness itself. And as a result, as a second point, which he doesn't say, but I believe it's implied. You can now live a life for which you're not ashamed. Formerly, you were ashamed of everything that you did, at least in your better moments. And certainly now, as you look back, you're ashamed. But now, by God's grace, and if you understand what God's grace does in a man's life, you'll not only see this in yourself, but in others. Now you're able to live a life that you're not ashamed of. In fact, just the opposite, Paul says. A life for which you can thank God. Hadn't he already done that in verse 17? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. But finally, he says, the end of such a life is not death, but eternal life. You have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. Well, let me make several comments on that point. The end of such a life is not death, though you die. The end of such a life is everlasting life. He's looking at the Christian life as John Bunyan is uh, in Pilgrim's Progress or as the writer to the Hebrews is in uh, in that great book. He's he's considering the value of the Christian life in terms of not so much where you are, but where you're going. Do you see how inevitably each course Runs to its end. Each life leads on by an invincible necessity to its appointed end. The end of those things for which you were once ashamed, Paul says, is death. Verse 21. In other words, and he says the same thing in Galatians chapter 6, which we read earlier. You can't live a life of sin. You can't sow to the flesh continually and expect to go to heaven. That is the devil's logic. A life of sin, let us realize, is a life that inevitably and invariably, by a law of necessity, leads to death. It leads a man not into the presence of God, but forever apart from his presence. But that same law of necessity can be applied 
to the life which is lived in the service of God. The Christian man who is bearing fruit for God. The Christian man who is sowing to the spirit and and storing up his treasure in heaven. He is able to look forward to the end of such a life. Not only what he enjoys in the present. And certainly he enjoys very much. But he's able to look forward to the end. Do you realize the value of each kind of life can only be measured by what it leads to? That's the true value of the contrast. Again, not so much what a man enjoys now, but what he will enjoy at the end of his course. What he will reap, having sown. There may be a a, a passing kind of pleasure in sin. But look at its end, Paul is saying. Look what it leads to. Don't you see it now? It led Adam right out of the garden. Formerly, it led you into a life of, of, of abject misery. It caused you to be under the condemnation of God. It leaves every sinner into the depths of misery, right into hell itself. Don't you see it, Paul is saying? Have you still yet not been awakened to the realities and the miseries and the sinfulness of sin? But here is the value of the Christian life, Paul is saying. Its ultimate value is seen in what it leads to. You who have fruit to God will also have the end of such a life. You will enjoy the outcome. You will enjoy the reward, namely everlasting life. And what is everlasting life? Obviously, it doesn't just mean that you'll live forever. For the unbeliever will live forever apart from God. It's a much richer and a fuller concept than that. It means something like this, if you understand the contrast. A life which is lived in the presence of God. Uh, The glories and the joys of heaven, living immediately in the presence of God and his son. This is the gain that Paul speaks of in Philippians chapter 1. For me to die is Christ, uh, or, or excuse me, for me to die is gain but to live is Christ. What is the gain? It is being ushered into the presence of God. That is life indeed. And that is a life that is never ending. And that is a life that you can never lose. It is everlasting. It is eternal. Sin can never rob it from you. Nothing will ever take it from you. It is yours. If you are in Christ. And that is the appointed end of every Christian who is bearing fruit now for God. And so I could put it like this. The Christian knows where he's going. The tragedy of the unbeliever, of course, is that he doesn't. He imagines uh, that uh, his, uh, his life will end uh, in a very different way. And if he realized where he was going, perhaps he would change his course. But the believer is aware of his destiny. He understands all that is involved in uh, the glorious liberty of sons. And of the, the, the inheritance that is stored up for them in heaven. But it is this awareness that leads him to live a certain kind of life. He doesn't reason, I'm going to heaven, let me live a life of sin. Do you understand the folly of that kind of reason? It is precisely his awareness that he's going to heaven that leads him to live a life of fruitful holiness. And so the Christian is someone, I say again, who knows where he's going. He understands the end for which he lives. This is one of the great burdens of Jonathan Edwards' ministry. And admittedly, it was easier in days where people were dying all around you all the time. And he recognized, as uh, John Shortman just reminded me on the phone this week, of of the true end of the ministry and of the true end of Christian fellowship, which is to prepare people for eternity. 
Is that your view of the Christian life? Paul is saying, in essence, that it's the man who has no view of eternity. That's the man who lives a life of sin. But the man who is aware of the heavenly reality stored up for the believer in Christ, that's the man who will not only turn his back on the old ways by God's grace, but he will yield his body always and his life in the service of God. Listen to me when I say this, especially in the light of the death of a dear saint and friend. The end is not death for the believer. The end is death for the unbeliever, but the end is not death for the believer. That's just how he gets where he's going. The end is something far better. Again, I say the end is eternal life in the presence of God. The constant and unending enjoyment of him. And if that is so, if that is true of you and if that is true of me, then my life ought to reflect it. In other words, it ought to strike me that I ought no more to live for this world and its passing pleasures like I used to. But now I ought to live solely and fully for the life to come. Store up your treasures in heaven, Jesus says. So to the spirit, Paul says, Galatians chapter five. Certainly, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying neither is Paul that I'm trying to earn my way to heaven. How clearly he'll make that when he says the wages of sin is death. Sin pays a wage, but the gift of God is eternal life. It's a gift. And if you don't understand that, you don't know the first thing about grace. Well, give me give me the chance next week uh, to expound that thought. But if I am saved by God's grace, why would I ever do the opposite? I'm not trying to earn my way to heaven. But why would I live as though I'm going to hell? Does that make any sense at all? Do you see the incongruity? Do you understand how out of place now the life of sin is in the Christian life? Will you not instead, Paul says, live a life in the service of God every bit as, you once, uh, every bit as much as you once lived in the service of God? I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Amen. And let us come now to the table. Revelation chapter 19. That's a little bit of an unusual one, but just to keep things fresh, that is in the range of acceptable text in our book on the Lord's Supper. And this is the wedding uh, feast of the Lamb on the last day. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. Well, there's two things that's being said there, really. One is that. There's going to be a great feast at the end of the age, and I don't have any idea whether that's uh, a metaphor or if that's 
uh, actually going to happen. Uh, this is a book full of images. Uh, so I don't know what's exactly and literally going to happen on that day. Uh, but we are told to look forward to that day. It will at least be like a great feast, if not an actual one. But the second thing, which you may have noticed, is that the bride made herself ready. She's looking forward to it. She's preparing herself. Uh, she's, uh, she's putting on her garments. And uh, that's how we should view our life in this age. Until the Lord returns, we proclaim his death until he comes. That's, that's what Paul says. And we do so at the table. We are, we're making ourselves ready on the one hand, and we're also looking forward uh, to what he's, what he's offering to us on that day. We are looking forward to the great, uh, the great gathering of the saints in the presence of Christ. That's the end of the Christian life. Uh, that's what we're laboring and striving to inherit. And that's what a man loses when he falls away and lives a life of sin. But in the meantime, as I say, we're making ourselves ready. We do so at the table of the Lord's Supper. We do so in many other ways, but we do so at the table of the Lord. We proclaim his death until he comes. We anticipate it. We look forward to it. We make ourselves ready. I, I, I'm not sure I, I know what to say beyond that. that that's, that's what we're doing here. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And, and really, the question is simply whether that is your view of things. Are you looking forward to that day in faith? And do you see the value for the present in the portion that we have? Uh, the supper which Christ has given us. Uh, we gather together with him at this table now. Uh, with those words, uh, then, uh, let, me, let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, the gift of the Lord's Supper. And we ask you that it might be to us a means of preparation and a means of anticipation. And that by faith we might look forward to the good things that you have for us. And that even by faith we might begin to enjoy them in a kind of anticipatory way. That is to say, Lord Jesus, let us commune with you now even at this table. And enjoy uh, the feast of the Lamb, of the new covenant uh, in, in the new age. And though we don't have the fullness now, we have more than enough to make us happy and to make us strong. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Help us to take it in a worthy manner, we pray. Amen. Beginning now with the bread.